so so Steve, you know, I could talk about your brilliant career doing all the di different things that you have done. In fact, I could ask you to step back in time and talk. Oh, sorry, uh, and talk about your career. But in fact, I know I had to, I had to try it. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. But what I would like you to do is, you know, when I talk to people about you, uh, I they often say to me, "What do you mean he mounts huge theatrical productions?" You know, what does that mean? What does it actually mean? And uh, I find that the progression of where you started, uh, which in fact is remixing, in a way, to me, what you're doing now is like an extreme exaggeration of a remix. Comment. Hi, everyone. Um, that's, yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with that in a way. I, I've sort of said that... Um, the shows are also a natural extension of almost when I was a kid, I used to be a DJ and I would have a dance floor and it was the job to kind of make sure that everyone had a good time. And, you know, part of my job now is to do that in arenas, I suppose. So um, it is, it's obviously not just me. It's a huge team of incredible people that come together to put together these big shows. But um, I find when I'm, when I am putting together big, you know, arena shows, theater shows or whatever it is, it all comes down to what the act uh, is about, what kind of artists they are. Um, I tend to work predominantly on pop shows. So I work with people like Kylie Minogue and Steps and Westlife um, who have some in incredible material. Um, and it's about where to place those songs uh, usually within what we call the arc of the show. So it's a bit like it needs a beginning, a middle and an end. People need to kind of feel a certain way as they go through it. And um, the shows that I work on are very, uh, I would say they're very set. Once they're finished, they're a bit like a Broadway show. They don't change. There's not much deviation uh, in them. So the only thing that changes is the audience. Um, so yeah, when I set about um working on a, a a big show like a tour show um my work starts about six months uh before opening night um with all the prep and we work with all the incredible departments of creative direction and styling and choreography and all the production design um and we put it all together doing a lot of um remixing which i've always kind of said is the sort of newer version of arranging which which you are famous for um which is exactly the same thing is you know i've sent you things before and said here's a thing how do you hear it and you hear it in a completely different way and you know i've always admired that and i've i've found that i've been able to do that thing of someone says oh what about this in a whatever a bossa nova way or a la I was like, oh yeah in my head i can do that and i do the the Quincy Jones thing that he always said is, you know, and you've said before, you know, imagine it in your head and then go about, how, you know, making it. Um, in 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 your situation, the third part of that is make things that are impossible for musicians to play, but that's why they love you. Well, not, quite, not quite impossible, just on the edge of possible. 
just on the edge of, of, of a human being's capability, which is why everyone loves you because you always push the envelope. So, um, so yeah, I've, I just try and do that really and come up with new fresh versions of things, sometimes leave them as they are. Um, yeah. And put together very slowly and surely put together a show that that's because it's got to go out and it's normally got to last between six to nine months. So it's got to be good. So, so what I'd like to, that's a beautiful introduction of it, but now I'd like you to get down to the nuts and bolts. Six months before, what's the first thing you do and what's the second thing do you do? So what's the very first thing you do when, when it's six months before and you've got the gig? So the first thing I do um, is, it's obviously a collaboratory process. So the first thing that I would do would be to meet with the artist and usually the creative director um, and the set list is the very first thing. It can sometimes not always be in order, um, but there's a bunch of songs that you want to put in. Nine times out of 10, the artist will have a new album out. So there's going to be a bunch of songs that they're going to want from that. And then I work with artists, you know, predominantly artists that have been around for a long time. So they've got a bunch of hits that will always need to be in there. If you're a fan of an artist, you want to hear the hits. Um, so we start with a set list and uh, a shape of the show and, and an overall idea. So for instance, one of the last shows I did with Kylie was she had an album out called Golden and it had a slightly, slightly country twist to it. Not country, it wasn't a country album, but it had some guitars, it had some different things. Um, and the creative director, Rob Sinclair, Sinclair and her had decided it should be a kind of road trip across America. Um, and along the way, she'd meet various people and have various things. And we'd stop in different parts. And, and that gave us a, a, a genuine roadmap of, of where we could go um, and a, a musical a musical styling for it. Can I just pause you there? Uh, tell me the difference between the person you call the creative director and you who is, I believe, I, I guess your title is the musical director. Is that right? Yes, yes. So, so, what, so tell me what process, what, what does the creative director present? So the creative director will, it always works with the artist. I mean, the artist is always the creative creative director as well. They usually work with one other person to kind of get the vision across. But that is, what what is the, what is the, the visual on stage? Um, I'm always inspired by by visuals and by um by someone describing what something is going to go on on stage so um what's happening on stage what it's going to look like what what world we're going to be in for particular songs um and yeah just anything on on, on stage that is the visual side of it um and then my sort of part of it is the musical side of it so, so in fact, the creative director is kind of analogous to the the uh, director of a film or the scriptwriter of a film. In fact, exactly that. Yeah. Great. So, 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 the, so you guys have a meeting, the three of you, uh, and and then the the order of the songs, I think, obviously, has got to be a, an important thing. Where you're going to put the hits, the arc of the show. How do you plan that? you've got the hits that you say have to be in, but yes. you've also got the arc of the show to plan. This is going to be a climax. This is going to be the next climax. This yes. is the finale. How do you plan that? 
So we tend to work, certainly on the shows that I work on, we tend to have sections. Um, it's normally about six or it's five and an encore. Um, and in each of those sections, you can you can have a top and a tail with a song and then you've got a kind of the kind of meat in the middle of it. Um, we always it's always important to start big. Um, but the other thing as well is that when you one of the things that we found when you when you when you're if it's a show that's for a new album, um, you can always give away one of the album tracks as the opener, because the thing is, when you open a show, everyone's going to go crazy, no matter what. So you don't, you know, you just open with something that feels usually one of the, the a strong track from the album, but not necessarily one of the singles. That's always a good way to open, I think. And then the second song is always a good, you know, winner, like everyone kind of understands and knows what it is. Um, I have an analogy, uh, which is um, not very musical, but it's food based, um, which I'm sure you will appreciate, which is the sort of give them a biscuit analogy, which is, I think if you, as long as you give someone something they really want, then you can get away with maybe giving them two new songs or two songs that they might not know as much because you've, you've, they're happy with mm -hmm. what they've got and they know another one's coming on, coming along soon. Right. Um, that doesn't mean to say that those songs aren't great. It just means for more of a, you know, we have super fans that come to the shows and then we have fans and then we just have kind of casual uh, audience who kind of only know the singles. So they won't have heard the songs on the album and they won't know the fan favorites. So you don't want to lose them in the middle of it. So as long as you just make sure that you have a nice little kind of nugget every two or three to keep them occupied, that's always a, a good thing I find. Yes, and here, here's an interesting thing I think about you because you've always been a musician. I mean, yes. you're actually a musician, which is really kind of rare in terms of many producers. I mean, I've been working as a producer and arranger and all the different things that I do. But when I work as an arranger, I very rarely work with producers who are musicians. And that makes a huge difference in your vision. First of all, it makes my job way, way easier because you already are thinking in musical language you know you're not talking about puppies and 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 pink uh, elephants you're talking about things that are, are pretty and also you can you say here listen to this and so it makes it easy but in terms of your what you do as a show mounter as opposed to an elephant mounter uh you you actually take these songs which you're saying they need to have the hits and they want to feel good about having those hits but you actually have the audacity to present those hits in a different way because of your brain working as an arranger and saying what if because i've always said with arrangers that's the big question an arranger asks is what if what if i what if i did this song in this way that they're not used to and you do that a lot whereas i don't think in other shows of big artists they they do that rearranging thing uh, they don't have the uh i guess the bravery to do it what's your thinking on that there, there are some people that that um that do it really really well um in different ways um i mean there was a there was a period of time where um Stuart Price, who's an amazing producer and arranger, a musician, um, 
worked with Madonna and he did two or three Madonna tours and those reworkings were absolutely incredible and so good. Um, Mike Stevens, who works with Take That, again, another great musician that we know. Um, he's really good at that. Pet Shop Boys are, are really good at doing some, but again, that's Stuart again. So I think there are some, um, even going back to people like Britney, um, I know people that work with Britney and worked on Circus and worked on some of that stuff. There's always a kind of thing. I always, my feeling is, is that I don't, I never like doing anything for the sake of it. So for instance, give an example of something that you and I worked on. There was a, a Kylie tour that we worked on where there was a Kylie song, which people in the UK and Europe will be aware of, possibly not so much America called Better the Devil You Know. And there was a section where she was just gonna, we just needed her to come out as a kind of 1940s, you know, sort of showgirl, but, you know, much, sort of almost like a Liza Minnelli thing. And it was like, well, can you take this straight pop Stock Ekin and Waterman song and turn it into a big band version with a tap dance? And the thing is, is as someone said that to me, I was like, oh yeah, I know how to do that. And then you know how to do that. So that was quite an easy one for us to do. But, um, I mean, and I, I sent you something and that was all right. And then you turned it into something that was amazing and just blew the walls off of the buildings. And, 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 and the audience loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, but it wasn't too, it was, it was just, it didn't feel like, uh, it's, it's that thing with the remixing stuff. It, it didn't feel like it was a kind of square peg round hole. It was like, oh yeah, that works. Even though it was so different to how it was written. Indeed, indeed. And, and I think uh, I've seen um, some rather bad, bad quality videos of, of the show, uh, of that arrangement. And I noticed that the audience kind of, there's a little murmur, murmur, murmur going when they went after the intro and they realize what song it is. And I think yeah. that's a lovely moment because you're providing drama by doing that. Yeah, I mean, I like that. I, I'm a big fan of the tease, as you know, and I do like that. It comes from my point of view as well. It comes from that club culture and that remix culture thing of, you know, it just teasing something where people, you lull them into a full sense of security and then bam, you know, you you and I worked on a a, a fabulous burlesque show with um, Polly Rake or the Hurley Burley show, you know, and we did a version in that of Bad by Michael Jackson, mm. where the bass line comes in and it sounds like Fever by Peggy Lee, but it is the Michael Jackson bass line. And yep. even it gets into the like, even probably halfway through the first verse until you start to see the audience go, what? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. and when, when I saw the show, I, I, I also noticed that little murmur going on of yeah. oh, that song, what fun, you know. Yeah, it's like, is that, it can't be. They wouldn't, you know, we did the same one in Hurley Burley show we did, It's a Sin. And you know, turned it into that thing. And there was another. What was the other one we did? Oh, we did "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" yeah, yeah, yeah. as an Argentine tango that ended up. Oh God, it ended up with a kind of something that sounded like the chase scene out of a Benny Hill movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> with, well, you um, had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So, but this is what I'm saying. This is like you know, as much as my you know my pop career is the kind of West stuff. I. West Life and, and Steps and Kylie, I love, you know, what we do there, but it's just, it is more of a West End Broadway musical director, producer, supervisor role yeah. that yeah. I take because I don't go on stage. Yeah. I don't play in the band. Yes. Half of my job, most of my job is done six, as I say, six months before where I'm, 
I'm working on the arrangements. I, I need someone in the band who is just going to purely make sure the band is killing it. So they haven't got time two days before the opening night to say, oh, we need to change that. We need to completely redo it. So, you know, I'm, I'm and I'm not a particularly comfortable person on stage anyway. So I've been lucky that the very first musical director gig I ever got was with Kylie and I did it as off stage. Um, and I've been allowed to carry on doing that for the rest of my career. So it's worked out quite well. Yeah. Now, tell So that gets me to my next subject, which is, um, I think the audience often wants to think, oh yeah, it's Kylie, or it's the star who's creating all this, but it is a huge team. And I've always said making records is teamwork, you know, and that, that uh, if you, you might need 20 people on it or 60 people and every person is important and and as a producer your choice of team is of paramount importance so when you're mounting a show at that first stage in that six month period how how do you put together your team and what are you looking for in each department tell me about each kind of cubbyhole that you're going to stuff well, I mean, my, my side of it is obviously only going to be the musical side. So obviously all of the, you know, director and the video guys and the choreographer and stuff, that's down to the, the creative director. I mean, I will work with them. So the yeah. thing that I have, have control over of really, or a bit of a say in it is the band um, and the, the backing singers and just the engineers and the techs and the people that I work with. Um, so the front of house mix engineer, does the sound in the arena the monitor engineer who does the sound for the people on stage um so i have had for, for we, i tend to stick with people if i like them so um and for instance if we want to talk about something like the band so for a drummer in uh, uh something like a kylie minogue band they need to be an amazing drummer but they also need to have an incredible understanding of um electronics um, because sometimes they're going to be playing a full drum kit and that's great, but sometimes they're going to be playing samples and it needs to sound like a club record. Right. So they need their, their, they need to be so on the click. It's unbelievable because there's nothing worse. Um, for a keyboard player, I need someone to be an amazing keyboard player who can play great stuff, but also they need to be able to program amazing sounds because the sounds that are on the record, the worst thing you can ever have is go to a show and someone does a version of what the record sounds like and it's just a pony bunch of sounds yeah. so you yeah. know i th that's the same with front of house engineer mix engineer i because i am a producer and a mixer myself you know i'm a bit of a nightmare i have an idea of what i want it to sound like out front which i had to learn very early on um it's the worst job in the world for a perfectionist live sound yeah. because you can get it absolutely right and then you move venues and all of the settings are the same and it sounds totally different. Absolutely. So how and do you I, deal with that? Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think only with age have I mellowed to the <laughs> point where I have to just kind of go, okay, well, that's that. Because one day you're standing at the Royal Albert Hall and it sounds wonderful. And then the next day you're standing in an arena in Sheffield that's a reconstituted ice rink and it doesn't sound so good. Yeah. And um, but you then, just have to, 
you change everything for each venue? Oh, yeah, there's a bit of changing, but I mean, you sort of have to make your peace with it. I, I, I had to learn very quickly, and I did learn very quickly that, you know, we hear sound very differently to the main audience that comes in. So the things that are bugging us probably won't bug them. Mm. You know, it's all about the last 2%. So, but yes, yeah, so, so, so to answer your question, I, I'm, I, I pick the band, uh, obviously in association with the artist and what you're saying about, you know, the artist, it's their show. I mean, Kylie very graciously says, you know, she's the cherry on top of, of, the, of the show of the 80, 90 people that are working on the show. Yeah. But um, she's also the, the catalyst and the muse that right. make those people want to work as hard as they do because yeah. she's a, a wonderful person and an incredible performer and people want to make good things for her because yeah. there's a wonderful thing that happens that you know very well from, from having working with her yeah. that if you can if you make her happy and she goes, I love that, yes. it's actually a great feeling. Yeah, and I, I, I can sort of chime in here. I haven't had... Uh, very much direct uh, hanging out with Kylie as you had on the few occasions that I have actually physically worked with Kylie. Uh, that was the wrong way to put it. But on the few occasions that we've been in the same room, mm -hmm. the thing that's impressed me is how professional she is. Yeah. Uh, I remember the session that we did uh, for Dangerous Game. <laughs> and, and I had written something really difficult I mean, really difficult for her to sing. And she said, okay, fine. She walked right in and did it. No problem at all. And, you know, very good natured and very, you know, getting to work and it was terrific. And you uh, made us and you made her scream at the end of it. I made her scream, yes, but there was also some intervallic thing that I had her do. And it's fine. And yeah, it was this was a thing called the dangerous overture. This is the one of the very rare moments. I was listening to your interview with Trevor Horn. Yes. And um, I really liked that thing that, you know, some of the one of the most dangerous sentences to say to Richard is I'll just go for it. Yeah, <laughs> because and but on Dangerous Game, I really just said I didn't have any. I just was like, just go oh. for it. Just do yeah. your thing. Exactly. I wasn't expecting something from an Alfred yeah. Hitchcock movie. But I got it, and it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was a, that was a fun track to do. That was also a fun track to do. But what was great about that as well is it. it, it, it this is from the Kylie Deconstruction album. Is it did fit with the main song, which was a very James Bond esque. Yes, yes. You know. Yeah, situation. Yeah. Well, that was it, and and of course, as as an arranger, I think um, just as you, you, we're we're all thinking about how to present the artist in the right light. Um, there's another saying that I think I'd like you to expound on that I, that I use a lot uh, as my sort of basis of, of uh, production and arranging, and that is accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. And I yeah. think that that's something that you would also apply to presenting songs for a big show yeah i totally agree with that you you've kind of it's sort of go hard or go home i mean if you're the the, the one thing i think about shows for pop artists is um i mean nobody ever comes to me for under the top let's be honest no, i'm no. i'm or i am you. yeah or you 
we are both um, tremendous kitchen sink uh, salesmen. So um, no one's going to do that. But I, we can both, of course, do beautiful moments. But I think if you are going to go and see Kylie Minogue singing, spinning around, it does not. It needs to be the biggest, shiniest, glorious, take the roof off the arena version Indeed. that you could possibly get. It's got to be big. Um, and I think everyone expects the live versions to be bigger than the records. Right. Um, so that's something that I'm very keen to always do. Yes, and they are indeed, yes. Um, another thing, what happens from the first night on, are you still, you're still there throughout the tour, are you not? No, I work on a, um, again, this is where it goes back a bit to, I guess, a bit like it being a musical producer on a Broadway show. I work on a, a list basis of things that need fixing. So and this starts very, very early on. So from the moment that I've prepped all the arrangements and they've gone to the artist for it and the creative director for any tweaks or anything. So when I get a version that I'm, I'm happy to take in to the band for their first rehearsal, um, that's kind of, I, then my list starts. And my list normally has, you know, 500 things on it. And as we get closer and closer to production rehearsals where the music is sort of set, and then we go to first, get to first night. I'm there until my list, until um, my list stops. So until there's nothing on my list. So if it takes four days for things to be fixed, I mean, I'm very much about an audience as well. So musically, everything might be right. Visually, everything might be right. But there may be something that we were hoping would affect an audience in a different way to what it did. So we have to change that because I have I have what I call audience hit points. And I think when I do this, they're going to do that right. because I, I'm not always right. But I put you do the same thing. We put things in. We put, you know, whatever Trevor would call them, zingers or yes. effects. There's moments where you go, that's going to make people go ah, whatever. And if it doesn't and I haven't done my job properly, I get time to kind of fix it. So but the, the answer to the question is. I leave when I've got nothing left on the list and everyone's happy. Right. And sometimes that can take a week. Sometimes on the show we did, we did a big show called Aphrodite Lear Folly, which is a big water show. Right. Right. I literally end of night one, ticked, tick, 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 went home the following day right. because it was perfect. Fantastic. And then, and then are you ever called back in the middle of a, a tour to say, wait, there's some, we got a problem with X. I really, we, we, we have, we have sometimes changed, sometimes changed things midstream, but um, very rarely I go back um, once in a while just to sort of keep my eye on things and just check it's okay. But as I say in Kylie world, and I'd say probably I'm Westlife and steps as well. When the show is set, that is the show. Right. So there isn't any, we, we just like to feel that, you know, very much like Broadway, we like to feel that the only thing that should change is the audience. Right. Um, the, the performer obviously will do their own thing, but there's no sort of room to kind of go off piste, so to speak. Right. Well, but, no, especially if you haven't been drinking, there's no reason to be piste. No, there's there's a hundred percent. There's a hundred percent no reason. So, yeah. So I I I don't. Yeah, I've I don't think I've really ever been called back to say, oh God, it's all going terribly wrong. We need to completely change it. Okay. Well, I, I've got. One more question for you that 
is kind of a funny question, but it's a question which I know. Look, you've you've been given a, a toy shop, which is the greatest most unlimited infinite toy shop in the world which is to mount shows with huge budgets for big stars yeah now, what i would like to know from you is if you were to advise a band who is gigging around but they want to make their show more exciting they want to incorporate some of the thinking that you're thinking that you use when you're mounting a show but, but they don't have the huge financial resources. What advice can you give to a band who's got an act and they, they, they're, they're playing a few clubs and they want to make, they want to make a bigger impression. So they'd say, uncle Steve, what do we do? What, what kind of things should we think about? So I love, um, as much as I do these big, big shows, I love it when, we do something smaller. I love it when I'm in a smaller venue. I love it when we don't have much to play with. So I would advise them on the basis of something that, again, going back to Kylie, because it's the person I work with the most. Um, a few years ago, we did a thing called an anti-tour, which was her doing album tracks and B-sides. And it was in tiny clubs and tiny venues, 600, maybe 700. We did it again recently with another show. And so we didn't have all of those things. And I would advise your band that just starting out, I'd firstly, have some kind of intro or way of you getting on stage that's exciting. Don't just walk on and plug your instruments on. And then secondly, invest in someone, even if it's a mate who understands something about lighting. It doesn't have to be, it can be, four light tubes that you can buy from the local store you know there is a there's the best my in my opinion the best dynamic you can have in lighting is darkness because if you start in darkness you can you can add to it so and just make sure that the material you're doing you do the the best possible versions of each of those songs and build live moments into it the thing about bands is if they've got material they love and an audience they love, they tend to automatically, as they start gigging, they'll put a breakdown here or a sing-along bit there or something like that. But if you want to get that wow factor and there's no money, then just have, if there's someone in the band that's creative or something, just get them to think about how it's going to look from, from the front. Um, and just, again, even if it's a couple of little light boxes, just something that can just switch on and off, but lighting, you know, a bit of neon, you know, it doesn't have to cost the world, but think about how you look as a band and what makes you different to everyone else. I think that's fantastic advice. And um, I want to give you a chance right now to plug whatever you're doing right now. What, what's up? Uh, I have a show that I work on with a friend of mine, Cliff Masterson, who's an arranger um, called 80s Classical, where we, take a symphony orchestra and five huge 80s icons including Jimmy Somerville and Belinda Carlisle and we do a show where they come on and they sing with the orchestra so it's it's very you Richard <laughs> sounds great I look forward to the first gig so I'm doing that but but mostly I'm 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 missing you so it's so lovely to see your face right it's fantastic to we, see we we had a really lovely thing come up recently I'm 
I made, a, I produced a record for, I know in America, not well known, but Take That obviously are a big band. Yeah. And um, they had an anniversary of an album that Richard and I worked on called Never Forget. And <clears throat> I was telling the story, and I'll just end with this because I still think it's fabulous. And if anyone can go and listen to it, they can. Do you remember on that album, there is a song called Sunday to Saturday that you wrote an amazing brass chart for. And then at the very end, we had, would you say the finest sax player of his generation, Nigel Hitchcock? I would say so. I would say Nigel Hitchcock is pretty much the finest saxophone player that the, the world has ever seen. But but yes, he was amazing. Yes. And, and at the end, we just, Richard just said, oh, just let him blow. And he did this incredible, I mean, it was basically as, as tracks were dropping off the multi-track, there he went. He did a, probably a minute and a half at least bebop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a minute and a half proper bebop. Oh yeah. Charlie Parker esque. Yeah, yeah. Solo on yeah. a pop record. Yeah. Um, which which was taken from Richard's incredible brass arrangement, and on a pop album by a boy band. And amazingly, to this day, I can't believe that the record label just let it play. Yeah, and I and I remember shortly after that, the, the guys in the band actually. Talk to me and say, "Oh man, that was great! They were raving about this sax solo. Yeah. Oh, we love yeah. it." Well, you know, it'll never see the album, but it it stayed on. <laughs> <laughs> so said, yeah, oh, so love it. <laughs> I know. So yeah, so we had some fun, but uh, yeah, no, that's it. I've, I'm just kind of keeping on, keeping on, really, and uh, it's just so well, lovely to see your face. Glad to hear that there's the craziness is continuing. Lovely right, to see yeah. you. Fantastic. Thank you for asking. I'll see you love soon. You. Bye. Wait in the flesh. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye.